Welcome to Prussian Socialism. This week, I'm here with my colleague, Mr. Warren Balog, and the topic of our discussion will be the early modern Italian political philosopher Niccolo Machiavelli, uh, 1469 to 1527. And Machiavelli has a reputation as being Machiavellian, which means uh, somebody who is very good at cheating and uh, coming up with schemes to stab other people in the back. But I think the reputation is undeserved because Machiavelli, I mean, we're going to talk mainly about his uh, book, The Prince, where he talks, he gives a description of how one should run a state. And it's sort of, you could look at it as like a Renaissance CEO businessman book, but for uh, political leaders. And I think, Warren, you'll agree with me that Machiavelli is misunderstood by the public because if you actually read his book, it isn't really as conniving or as um, as tricky as the epithet Machiavellian would lead you to think. Right. Well, first of all, uh, let's deal with pronunciation, the pronunciation of his name, because uh, I always heard him said it said Machiavelli, Machiavelli. And reading it, it looks like Machiavelli. Uh, you're the Italian guy. Is it Machiavelli? Yeah, it's Machiavelli. Machiavelli. So yeah. it would be like... I'm pretty uh, sure, yeah. Machiavelli. It's five syllables, right? Machiavelli. Machiavelli. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right, good. I'm glad we cleared that up. So I will say Machiavelli and... Uh, what's, the, what's the other way of saying it? Machiavelli. Machiavelli. No. Machiavelli. That's, that's, Machiavelli. A, that's a Germanic... Ger- in Germanic languages, we like to put the stress in the first syllable. So off any... So we'll often retract the stress to the first syllable. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Like like when, when like uh, like Medici instead of Medici. Oh, okay. Right. Of course. Yeah. 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 So like when 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 I learned that Nietzsche is not Nietzsche, it's Nietzsche. Nietzsche. Uh-huh. Like that. That just like blew my mind. So I want to make sure I get Machiavelli's name right. Um. Yes, I in rereading the Prince. Of course, I read the Prince in high school. And I found it incredibly boring. I was just like, I don't care about Italian princes and all these people that he mentions that I've never heard of before. In that way, it, it, the book is kind of like Mein Kampf in that he refers to a lot of things that people don't know about today. So yeah. if you're like reading his examples, you know, right, right. I mean, the yeah, examples he gives uh, the examples. It's funny. It's sort of like reading Dante uh, in, yes. in Dante. There's all these classical examples that. If you read a lot of classics, you you get instantly. That's still like part of the common culture. But then there's these references to like Florentine uh, politics of uh, in the 1200s, or in Machiavelli's case, Northern Italian politics of like the 1400s. That it, it just you don't know unless you make a special study of it. Well, that's like, and that's why I compare it to when Hitler talks about Austrian v- Viennese politicians of the of the pre-war period of his youth. You know, it's like he'll talk about those two figures that he was very influenced by when he was uh, a student in Vienna and uh, it's like people, people, their eyes glaze over uh, when they, when they read that. And it's also funny because you and I've been talking a lot lately about how, and this has been a theme of yours for years about how a basic classical liberal arts education, a classical liberal arts education is something so neglected that it's, it's incredible that uh, we, we, we are so, I mean, this is a man of, the 1500s the four what is he was born in the 1400s I yeah think? 1469 yeah so so this is basically a man of the late middle ages really it's like the late middle ages early renaissance so 
it's funny that we are so in this age of like microchips we're so ignorant most people even educated people are so ignorant about the the references that he makes and it's funny because in high school i got the basic reading of the prince without we never really studied all the classical stuff that he's referring to you know so anyway it's just it's an interesting point but yeah to 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 what you said i don't believe that machiavelli uh in rereading it recently I don't believe that he deserves the reputation that he has. I don't believe that the term Machiavellian, which I would say the popular connotation of it is, uh, like you said, conniving, um, duplicitous, maybe, um, what's the word? Intrigue, you know, like palace intrigue. I think yeah. that's what, when they were, when people refer to a Machiavellian politician, the idea is someone who is plotting and someone scheming. Like, like Talleyrand. Yes. Uh yes. Someone who or or even more even more so like someone who is just um trying to think of a good example. Like like uh like John Edwards. <laughs> like like just a plotting, scheming like like even even to the extent that she is uh, a, a, a stupid monkey, uh Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris's marriage to that Jew in um, that Jew in uh, California, uh, what's his name? Um, um, uh, I forget his no, name. I, yeah, uh, I, the first husband. Um, you know that you could you could interpret that as a Machiavellian move. You know she she married a a, a finance Jew. You know and uh, uh, that allowed her to get in with a certain crowd and then she did this and she did that and it's like a sort of climbing she's climbing the ladder like like she positioned herself well kamala harris to be now the vice president of the united states and she didn't do it through popular appeals to the people she did it by knowing the right people by kissing the right asses by being in bed with the right having the right financiers backing her and she maneuvered herself so that she became chosen as the vice president even though she had no popular appeal although machiavelli does mention that that is a valid way to get into power by aligning yourself with the oligarchs with the few as opposed to aligning yourself with the people right exactly so I think that uh, <clears throat> that the, what I what I see with Machiavelli's real uh, he, he he's not talking about palace intrigue. He's not talking about how to win friends and influence people. He's not talking about uh, how to manipulate people in a in a uh, uh, like Iago from Shakespeare. You know, uh, uh, someone who is behind the scenes plotting and and maneuvering themselves i think he's deal first of all the prince he's dealing with a prince he's dealing with someone who is the head they they are in control They're, this isn't like an advisor this isn't the grand vizier who's controlling the guy behind the scenes and pulling the strings he's dealing with a guy who this is the guy in charge of the state this is the guy who is the acknowledged everyone sees it he's the one running the state um so there's a degree of honesty there about the person that this isn't someone who is maneuvering themselves into power behind the scenes, as we see with every corporation and with every politician, that there are people like that. The other thing is that I think that he is broadly concerned with, uh, in a sense, the social good. I mean, not really, because he's just, uh, on, a, on a very basic level, he seems to be saying, 
this is what you do to stay in power or to take power, but mainly to stay in power once you've taken power. Right. And, and he makes the point that you need that the good of the state is accomplished by you staying in power, assuming you're not a total shitbag. Right. Because you're, you're not doing anybody any favors if you're so good that you get overthrown by anarchists or a, a usurper. Right. Um, what what Machiavelli is identified with is realism, realism in politics. And this is, uh, you know, when I was in college, Greg, I didn't, uh, I had a lot of friends who were, I was a marketing major, so I wasn't really thinking about this stuff. I wasn't studying it, but I had a lot of friends. All my friends were in politics and a lot, I had a lot of friends who were international studies majors and uh we're, the war on terror was raging and i knew guys uh, a very good friend of mine who was uh in the college republicans and and served over in iraq and everything and at the time he was like a big george bush supporter he then soured on him but he was he, he and i would discuss these things um and he explained to me and my other friend explained to me about the difference between realism and idealism in foreign policy and uh at the time when i heard the terms i immediately was like well I would choose idealism over realism, right? You right. Because idealism, uh, you know, I'm an idealist. I, I, I'm not serving the material and the money. I'm serving the high ideals of culture and, you know, religion and art. Um, and then I, I, you know, I later learned that the terms are complete misnomers in, in terms of the George Bush era of Paul Wolfowitz and, and, and uh, Richard Pearl in terms of the neocons. Realism and idealism, because the neocons portray themselves as the idealists, or they were they were smeared by the press, not smeared, but they were they were pegged as being idealists because they weren't accounting for the facts on the ground in Iraq, yes. right? That was ba- yes. And, yes. and then there was the realist kind of more traditional foreign policy position of well, maybe we shouldn't spread democracy to Iraq. Yes. So so so. And you and I had a very interesting discussion that I wish we'd recorded when I was on that long car ride a few weeks ago where we were discussing this, but. I feel like what is portrayed as idealism in foreign policy, or at least was during the Bush era, is pretty much the opposite of it. So the so-called idealists during so the realists during the Bush era were, uh, we are a nation state that has interests. We have rational interests. We should pursue our interests by you know supporting this government in this state because that helps us. We get oil from these people. We get money from these people. Yeah, it's we get the, arms the from standard these like American foreign policy in the Middle East since 1945, allegedly. I mean, allegedly, uh, allegedly. Putting right. putting these Israel question out of it, but right, like our right. policy was get the oil, right? right. And, and we'll and, support any shitbag, Saddam. Actually, Saddam was a well, I, I won't smear him. We'll yeah, leave that open yeah, to debate, yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah, yeah. we'll support it, anybody. Anti-Saddam we'll reply. support anybody as long as he gets us what we want, which is the oil. Right. And the idealists were portrayed as and still are, I think. I mean, I think in foreign policy uh, classes, this is still taught. Idealists are on the Wilsonian model. So the Wilsonian model being, no, our foreign policy is not to pursue the interests of the United States as a blood and soil entity. Our interests are to spread democracy and freedom around the world. The abstract ideal of democracy for the for the sheer good of it, for the sheer good of it. So but there there was that. But then there was also for the sheer good of it. And then also because spreading there was remember very clearly in the Bush era, spreading democracy is good for us. Because it is in our interest to spread democracy. 
There was like they yes, ha- they wanted they, to have yes, it both they did ways. They try to fall back on that, and they did that also in World War II because ultimately you can't get guys to go and die for an abstract ideal. Like you need to have some concrete thing. So like in World War II, uh, if you watch the Why We Fight series of films by Frank Capra, ultimately it makes the argument that if we don't go over and fight the Germans and the Japanese, that they will invade us at some point. That right. we will fall. America will literally physically fall to an invasion by fascist forces. Um, and they will destroy our lives. So it's like it's a it's an existential threat, as they say. So y- yes, they would do that during the war on uh, you know the old famous the, the adage of uh, fight them over there, so we don't have to don't fight them have over to fight here. Fight them over yeah. here, which is so absurd. But I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's like well, maybe if you didn't have like mass immigration from the Middle East, you, know, you wouldn't have that. <laughs> right, it's exactly. Like, <laughs> but 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 this this false dichotomy of realism versus idealism in foreign policy circles in international studies is one of the most mendacious uh just fake phony lying spin of terms what the idealists were were actually ultra realists they were jewish ultra realists jewish supremacists who are narrowly pursuing the interests of the Jewish race at the expense of all other races on earth, including the Aryans who do the bulk of the fighting and tax paying and working and everything else in their host country, the United States. So in order to explain this this, uh, gap between what the foreign policy aims that the country is pursuing on the one hand and the actual interests of the people on the other, this huge gap, which is actually explained by the fact that the people making foreign policy are Jews pursuing a parasitic agenda for themselves at the expense of the host population. They rationalize this gap of their interests versus the interests of the people by saying Paul Wolfowitz and Richard Pearl are idealists and what they're actually pursuing is democracy. They're selfless, selflessly pursuing the helping to bring freedom, the women of Afghanistan, helping to give the women the right to vote in Afghanistan. That's why Americans are dying over there. So anyway, realism at the time, my first encounter with the term realism in college, bit of a digression there, but it applies to Machiavelli. My first encounter with the term realism, I was like, well, of course, I would be an idealist, not a not a realist. And then I later, what I later learned was, uh, in a sense, realism is like the actual more idealistic, like it means like you are doing, you are serving the state, you're serving your nation, you're serving your people. Idealism means chasing after phantoms. Right, I mean, it's sort of a basic philosophical thing, but shouldn't we try to figure out what's true before we figure out, or shouldn't we try to figure out what is before we figure out what ought to be? Yes. You have to, you have to base what you want based on the truth not based on your fantasy right because if you based on your fantasy you're just going to get something like communism well and you and i talked about this an, um, an absurd you know not non-doctrine well that's the thing is the discussion that you and i had and and we're going to talk about this in a future episode so i don't want to get into it right now but the discussion we we you and i were having is the comic book view of the world that americans are brought up with versus the way men of history men of europe always thought about history and learned and the one example that we were we discussed on that road trip that i was on was how americans are incapable are the way they're taught they're incapable of seeing a conflict except in terms of good and evil where there's a good guy and a bad guy and so for example the example we were talking about is achilles versus uh, hector 
right. and how it's it's very hard for Americans to understand a conflict where both sides are honorable and both sides are worthy of respect. And there isn't a clear cut good guy and bad guy. How Americans just are, and even people in our movement, are unable to grasp that because it doesn't jive with how they were taught. But when you learn history, what you realize is, and you, you were the one that said it, you said the evil is that this idea that your enemy is absolute evil and you are pure good and you're not fighting for your interests and your people and your country and your land and your blood and soil and your family. You're fighting for good, for goodness, that God has blessed you to fight for goodness and that your enemies are not fighting for their families and their land. They're fighting for the evil of it. That that morality, which is very much an Abrahamic Hebrew Old Testament way of looking at the world, that in fact is the thing that leads to the worst atrocities and the worst evils. And and this is something that we've talked about. Yeah, it's the, the arrogance and the presumption of thinking that you are absolutely morally uh, correct. Yes. Yes. Which is actually just a rationalization for pursuing your your interests unencumbered by any ethical restraint whatsoever. So so actually no not we're not saying that there aren't good versus evil conflicts there are there are but even within a good versus evil conflict so for instance uh you could say that uh the you know an example that i've thought about is hitler talked about how in the world war one I, I mean he certainly thought that fighting for the germany and german culture was the good and that the mercantile banker worldview like Houston George Stuart Chamberlain wrote about of the of the Western allies was the bad was the evil but Hitler was not and I don't think any of those guys were so drunk on propaganda that they thought that every Frenchman and every Englishman and every American that they were shooting was some kind of raping murdering savage right the Americans on the other hand were taught to believe that they were taught to believe that the Hun is a is a child murderer who sticks babies Belgian babies on bayonets, and what that was was what they call hate propaganda that is designed to make you into a killing machine so that you will dehumanize your enemy. It's so funny because the people that always talk about the other and otherizing people and dehumanizing mm -hmm. them so that you can do an atrocity on them. These are the people that invented that. These are the people that invented that. They invented it during the First World War. All those Jews running uh, the Committee on Public Information, they they spread this idea. We still deal with it today. We're dealing it with Russia and Ukraine. Like, you can't deal with this issue of Russia and Ukraine except in terms of one is good, one is evil. Even our people who back Russia, there's a tendency to want to just like not acknowledge like brave Ukrainians defending yeah. their homeland. Like, and it's, it's like in almost every war in all of history, it's like, it's okay to, to acknowledge that the enemy soldiers are brave or that they're fighting for what they think is right. You know, like anyway, to bring this back to realism, Machiavelli is a wonderful realist in the, in the best sense of the word. And I don't think that there's anything dirty or immoral or amoral even about realism. I think that, in fact, it's the other way. I think so-called idealism is what leads to, uh, you know, I mean, Trotsky said it best. Trotsky wrote a book called Communism and Terrorism that is the most, like, Hebrew thing I've ever read. It's so funny because he's, like, completely repudiating religion, right? But he wrote this book called Communism and Terrorism where if you look at it, he actually says 
that terrorism is not only a right of the communists, but it's like a, a moral duty. It's a moral imperative because he says we are fighting the fight to free the proletariat, liberate the proletariat. This is the good fight. This is the universally good thing. So if we're fighting for absolute good, our enemies must be absolute evil. So if our enemies are absolute evil and we're absolute good, then anything we can do to hurt our enemies, including like torturing their children, right, is morally right, is morally justified. And the Cheka did this, you know, when 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 they took power. It's very Old Testament. It's very kill the men, women, children, the goats, the plants, the trees. Yahweh has decided that you all must die for for opposing him. Uh, as opposed to you said the tragic worldview, the the Greco-Roman, the pre-Christian worldview, the classical worldview that Machiavelli is very much a student of. And it is not a worldview of this absolute good and evil where there's this like insane level of intolerance where you are justifying pure evil in terms of pure good. It is a realist worldview where my state, my people have interests, their state has interests, and we're going to we have to have a conflict. We have to work this out. Um, I would say this about Machiavelli. All his statements in his book, almost all of them begin the same way, which is it's said that you should be this way and don't be this way. He's like, but when we study how the world works, actually we see that there are times when it's necessary to be this way and not this way. Machiavelli never says, he never says, this is like the ideal way to be. Or there is, he's not a moral nihilist. He's not saying like that we should just throw morals out the window. What he usually will say, and, and we'll come to this when we're talking about why it's better to be loved than, or feared than loved. And he doesn't actually say that. He says it's safer to be feared than loved. But his whole point is... People suck. People suck. Human beings are shitty. Human beings do terrible things to each other and are liars and cheats and cowards. That's a fact. That's just the way people are. So if you treat people like they're all honest, sweet idealists and they are lying, cheating scumbags, you're just going to get fucked. Right. And for a person, for an individual... There could be a certain nobility in that. There could be a certain nobility in having like a kind of attitude of a of a uh, of a stoic or of a asthete or of someone who a is saint. Yeah, a yeah. saint. You are renouncing the pleasures of this world. You are turning the other cheek. You are, you know, like in uh, Les Miserables, the beginning of Les Miserables, uh, uh, Jean Valjean steals from the bishop who shows him kindness he steals his like silver candlesticks and when they catch the bishop or when they catch Jean Valjean and they bring him before the bishop the bishop is such a good christian that he's like you forgot the cutlery you forgot the silver cutlery from yeah. my and Jean Valjean is so blown away by this because he's only ever dealt with like mean nasty people that he is a changed man for the rest of his life he he he's like a christian person it's like i'm going and that's very that is christian in its purest sense You've stolen from me. You stole five bucks from me. Here's another five bucks because you obviously need it or else you wouldn't have stolen from me. What Machiavelli is saying is that's noble for an individual. But for a statesman, if you're in charge of a state with a group of people 
and you deal with other states on that basis, it's not noble. It's actually you are condemning your people to like slavery and destruction if you deal that and way. I, and I think in that regard, Machiavelli is uh, sort of providing a a counterbalance to the education of what what we'd imagine a typical like Italian elite or uh, of the time would be, which would have been Christian and and classical, and and somebody in the um, somebody in the elite would probably have been brought up with a lot of these principles of like Roman honor and 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 also Christian. Uh, humility and decency and might take those principles so far as to try to operate on them in a position of power and Machiavelli's you know I think he's providing that like counterbalance where he's saying well look uh, you can't always just be nice to people because you as a well brought up noble person you are going to have to deal with these like bad people I mean it's like the mentality of think of like the conservative a very conservative person assumes often that other people are really good. I mean, I guess I, I shouldn't make that too broad, but there's a, a particular type of person who assumes that other people are good and that we should uh, we should like design off society on the assumption that people are good. I would say this. I think that uh, he was living in the time, it was shortly after the Borgias, right? Or during the Borgias? Yeah, he mentions, yeah, he mentions the Borgias. Borgia, yeah. yeah, so... so and we know what we know about, like, I don't, I, I'm not an expert on Renaissance Italy, um, but I know that there was some, like, for instance, uh, the stuff that gave rise to Luther and the Reformation, that there was some really gross hypocrisy going on with the princes of the, you know, princes of the church that, you know, uh, like, I, I always make the joke that back then when I was reading about what Luther was protesting against, like when he said that uh, priests should marry, so Luther's like, priests should marry, and, and the... The traditional view is like, oh, this, you know, the Catholic view is like this degenerate Luther just wanted to, you know, he, he was lusting after the head nun uh, and, and he wanted her. So he's rationalizing, like, even though he's a monk and he's sworn to celibacy, he's rationalizing getting laid. <laughs> not really true. Uh, Luther was a fanatical uh, idealist, truly, uh, in not in the in the in the neocon sense, but in the actual sense. Uh, Luther was a true believer in his own doctrine. Um, but the priests of that time, uh, a lot of the high churchmen, it's funny because we imagine like corruption in the Catholic church today, a priest is, uh, screwing the choir boy, right. you know, he's molesting the choir boy. That's the thing that we see all the time. So you think, okay, well, what, what about back then? They've sworn a vow to celibacy. So they must be like secretly screwing the monk, right? Like they has a gay relationship. No. They would have like a whole house filled with like a harem of prostitutes. So it's like you're a high like archbishop and instead of a wife, you have you're living like a like a like a sultan in the Middle East. You've got a literal harem of whores that are your harem. Um, because well, allegedly, this is still or has been even since then a thing with in particularly Latin countries where, yeah, you're the priest is supposed to be celibate, but everybody knows the priest has like a, is a, a common law wife. Well, what's funny is that's so much healthier than today. Like with the, with the choir boy or the, yeah, the right. you know what I mean? It's like more natural for a priest to have a harem of, of like whores, but, but yeah. Um, 
point being that I think, I don't know, I, I don't imagine, this is the era of mercenaries, this is the era of warring Italian city-states, and it's the era of when the church was in the hands of the Borgias and some of the most corrupt, you know, people who are infamous in terms of how, how corrupt and hypocritical they were. So I don't imagine that many people were like idealistically trying to be good Christians in medieval Italy at the time. What I imagine, though, is that the danger is if someone is inclined towards idealism, it's like it's like Hitler. Hitler always talks about the need to be fanatical. He always talks about that. And you could say that fanaticism is kind of a bad thing, right? Fanaticism is like an excess of zeal. You know, fanaticism yeah. is sort of it always has like a at best a, a kind of mixed uh, term. Hitler also always talks about the need to be ruthless. And if you look up the definition of ruthless, it means without With mercy. pity. Without pity or mercy. So you'd think, well, that's horrible. You know, like a man who speaks about ruthlessness and fanaticism, Hitler. Clearly, he's the bad guy, right? Look at Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson, all he talks about is how he hates war and he loves peace and justice and mercy and freedom and... We know from countless accounts of Lyndon Johnson that he was essentially a psychopath. I mean, his own Jewish biographer, uh, uh, Caro, um, wrote this massive four-volume thing of, of – and he said that uh, – four-volume biography of Lyndon Johnson. And he said that Johnson was more to a degree beyond like any normal politician, totally unencumbered by ethics or conscience or anything. Johnson was a total psychopath – uh, and, uh, what's his name? Roger Stone wrote a book about him. Um, and even though Roger Stone's a piece of shit, it's a very good book called The Man Who Killed Kennedy. And he talks about how, how Johnson was an amoral psychopath. So it stands to reason that an, a man like Hitler, who from a little kid was believed in like German heroes and fighting for your country and honor. And, you know, when Hitler was a kid, he wanted to be a priest. You know, he was, he was a, Hitler was a choir boy. And then when he, he was reading about the heroes of German history and Hitler was a true believer, he was a true idealist. And I think he was a, at heart a very sensitive man. Lyndon Johnson, on the other hand, was an amoral psychopath. So it stands to reason, and this is why I'm bringing this back to Machiavelli, that Johnson, when he is what he's talking about in public life is peace and freedom and love and all this while he's plotting horrible, you know, like dropping napalm on Vietnamese villagers and assassinating his own president and, and just like, I mean, just doing the most fucked up things that any president has done except for FDR. Hitler, on the other hand, being a, a conscientious man, being a man of mercy, being a man of sensitivity and kindness. We know how kind he was to his servants, for instance, his staff. We know how in Mein Kampf he talks about how he's feeding the mice that he was living in. I mean, you think you're living in a hovel with some rats or mice. You wouldn't like, and you're starving. You wouldn't like give them some of your food. Hitler, though, talks about the need to be ruthless the need to be fanatical because Hitler was a realist and because he was educated in the First World War, the peace treaty. He saw how Germany was stabbed in the back. He saw how they lied about all the, the well, things think, of Versailles. And I think Hitler's education is a, it's sort of a good example because it's most people. I mean, you need you want to educate all of your people to have that good mentality or that, yes. that good morals. But when a person ascends from being a member of the peasantry to being the leader, he has to 
account for all the evil in people, even if he's been educated to be a perfectly good person. It's sort of like what Plato talks about with uh, bronze, silver, and gold souls. Like you have these different levels of morality, and at the lowest level, you just need to teach people, like like we teach child toddlers, we teach them to be good, not to lie, to uh, always behave in this certain way, and that's good. And we you need everybody to act that way in your society. But if you're the man at the top, dealing with other people in other groups who are trying to destroy you or people within your own society who are trying to destroy the society, you need to use, use, understand their methods and beat them at their own game. Yes. I think is. is Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. um, Yeah. And that's, that's, let me just finish with that is that with what I'm saying is with Hitler, it's the sensitive man. The compassionate man is the man who in public life, needs to be ruthless, needs to consciously sometimes shut out mercy and pity. Uh, and and the virtuous man is the man, or the, the good man, because we're going to talk about virtue, the good man is the man who needs to understand realism. The amoral psychopath like Lyndon Johnson does not need to educate himself in realism because right. he is by nature a a manipulative... What we think of as Machiavellian, what is thought of as Machiavellian, this guy is by nature. And that's what a psychopath is or a sociopath. It's just an a, a, amoral or just immoral person who has no conscience and no ethics. The, Machiavelli is clearly not talking to people like that. He's not talking to someone who does not have a conscience or a sense of ethics. He's speaking to the man who has conscience and the man who has that, in my opinion, in my opinion, in my reading of it. He's speaking to that person and saying... I know it's good to be this way in your personal life, but as a statesman, you got to understand you're dealing with real hard asses who are not playing by those rules. And if you don't play by this other set of rules that applies to statesmen and princes, uh, you're just going to get beaten and your people are going to suffer for it. So uh, I want to, why don't we do it this way? Let's kind of go through this the same way that Machiavelli goes through it. Machiavelli will, will, elucidate a general principle and then he'll give a bunch of uh, historical and current examples so the first thing that machiavelli is probably most known for uh in the prince is and he wrote i mean a side note he, he wrote a number of books the prince is a very short one it's probably his most known but he wrote a book on the art of war he wrote another book discourses on on livy the roman author roman historian and he wrote a history of florence and there are a couple others too but the first principle that he's most known for from the prince is the idea that for a leader, for a prince, it is better to be, you want to be loved, but it is, if you can only be loved or feared, it is better to be feared than loved. Yes. Uh, so this, I love this passage and I'm going to read it because I want to read it and quote it in context. Um, it's something that, Again, the way you started to say it is the way people know it, that it's it's better to be feared than loved. You know, it's it, it's preferable to be feared and loved. And and the way uh, again, the way people interpret that is, is that it's like it's it's more expedient or that fear is stronger than love. Fear beats love or that, f you know, that love doesn't mean anything. 
You know, that's like, again, that's like a psychopath. That's like a psychopath. It's, right. it's like, it's like, I don't get love. Like love means not love is just some superfluous bullshit emotion, but fear is real and fear is how the world works. And I'm going to just make people fear me. What he says is this. So this is my translation. He says of cruelty and clemency and whether it is better to be loved or feared. He says, uh, Passing the actually, let me uh, let me go ahead here. Um, I'm going to skip ahead to where he actually takes its head on. Yeah, here it is. Here comes the question of whether it is better to be loved rather than feared, or feared rather than loved. It might perhaps be answered that we should wish to be both, but since love and fear can hardly exist together, if we must choose between them, it is far safer to be feared than loved. So he's not saying better in a moral sense. He's saying it's safer, safer. For uh, And this is my favorite. This is like my favorite sentence in The Prince. For of men, it may generally be affirmed that they are thankless, fickle, false, studious to avoid danger, greedy of gain, devoted to you while you are able to confer benefits upon them, and ready, as I said before, while danger is distant, to shed their blood and sacrifice their property, their lives, and their children for you. But in the hour of need, they turn against you. The prince, therefore, who without otherwise securing himself, builds wholly on their professions, so professions of love, is undone. For the friendships which we buy with a price, and do not gain by greatness and nobility of character, though they be fairly earned, are not made good, but fail us when we have occasion to use them. Moreover, men are less careful how they offend him who makes himself loved than him who makes himself feared. For love is held by the tie of obligation, which, because men are a sorry breed, is broken on every whisper of private interest. But fear is bound up by the apprehension of punishment, which never relaxes its grip. So the huge caveats that Machiavelli is sticking in the the uh it's not even a caveat what would you call it it's a uh, like the basis of his point the point that he's building yeah on. the premises the premises the premise is are men a sorry breed who their tie of obligation is broken on every whisper of private interest are men generally thankless fickle false studio to avoid gain greedy of danger etc studious to avoid gain those are the premises that he is building his his statement on uh now i think that that right there absolves machiavelli of being like an immoral person he is not saying oh people are I mean, imagine the reverse of this greg imagine if he were saying men are uh true and honorable and decent and honest and 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 when you when they give their word they stand by it and they're loyal to you no matter what because they are so honorable and they're kind and sensitive and compassionate so therefore you can easily trick them you can easily lie to them you can make promises to them because they're so stupid and honorable that you can jew them and lie to them and fool them because they will believe you when you say i give my word for something if, if, if he were saying that, then he would deserve the reputation that he has. You see what I mean? It's like if, if his reputation was people are nice and sweet and honest and stupid. So lie to them, cheat to them, you know, betray them at every opportunity and you'll do well. Um, 
he's not saying that. He's not saying that at all. He's saying people are shitty. So like, take that into account. You may want to be good, but remember, if you give your word and you're honorable and honest and you give your word to somebody, he's like, yes, like Hans Frank. Yes, mein Fuhrer. When he gets in Nuremberg and they're threatening him with hanging, he's like, Hitler was terrible. He tried to kill everybody. He tried to kill all the Jewish children. You know why? Because men are thankless, fickle, false studios to avoid danger. Now, generally, he says, generally, there are saints like Rudolf Hess and Joseph Goebbels. But for every Rudolf Hess and Joseph Goebbels at Nuremberg, there was a Hans Frank or a uh, Albert Speer or a... uh, uh, the press secretary, Otto Dietrich, mm-hmm. some guy that just, while while Hitler was able to confer benefits on them, were there, yes, the Fuhrer, the state. And as soon as he's not around anymore, they're like, they're going to hang me. I don't want to die. Hitler killed all the Jewish children. Save me, you know? Um, I mean, I that's th- a, what's funny, though, is that's a, such an, ex- that's a, an extreme example. You know, you're facing hanging. Yes. Uh, and then that's when you sell out. But what's funny to me is that there's you see so much uh, in politics now where it's way, way lesser oh, yes. punishment yeah. like you're yeah. facing. Well, that's why he says, if broken the tie of obligation, I love his like sarcastic extreme that he goes to. The tie of obligation, meaning honorable, like, I, I owe you this because I love you and you love me, which is broken on every whisper of private interest. So a whisper of private interest, like, you know. It's like yeah, we, you might might lose some money if you represent uh, those guys who are getting strung up at uh, Charlottesville. I had a a, a, a friend who uh, Italian guy actually who uh, one time we were talking and he made a point that was so funny. He said like people will be like ready to go and and like serve their country and idealism and goodness and save the children and help the poor and all this. He's like, but if their paycheck is going to be delayed by like two days, <laughs> they would like, you're going to get your, everything will be the same except you're going to get, or you're, you're going to get your check a week later. The amount of people that will just be like, well, no, no, I don't want to do that. You know, like, why would I, why would I do that? Yeah. <laughs> I think that that, I think that that statement, uh, Again, that that is the biggest single thing that shows that the Machiavelli that we are taught to believe in. You get what I'm saying, right? As far as the he's not saying be a Jew and dupe the goyim, like the honest, trusting, nice person who has faith for you or, or believes you. You know, there are people right. who um, that might be a good short term political strategy, but it's not if you're trying to be the prince and actually run the society, if you're stabbing people in the back, eventually it's going to catch up with you. I mean, he doesn't say that much, but I think it's, you could uh, deduce that. There's a David Lean film, David Lean, who did Dr. Zhivago. There's a David Lean film called um, a brief encounter. It's about a woman, an English woman, a middle-class English woman who has an affair with her husband. And she eventually comes back to her husband at the end. But the first time she lies to him, she tells him over the phone that she met up with a friend of hers and they went to a movie together and he like totally buys it. And then a voiceover, she says, it's like unsettling how easy it is to lie when you were trusted implicitly. Mm-hmm. In other words, like when someone trusts you, lying to them is the easiest thing in the world. You know, Machiavelli is not saying that he is not saying to go out and be a bastard to people who are good. 
he is saying people are bastards. And if you are good to them, if you don't take this into account, you will be doomed. And and again, he's not saying do this so you will get ahead in life. Do this so you will make more money. Do this so you will get the promotion. That's not Machiavellian. Uh, he's saying run your state this way or your state will fall. And he uses the example of uh, the, earlier in the book, actually in that same chapter, uh, I think he uses the example of the... Um, the uh, the guy who is harsh, it's in that chapter or earlier, the guy who uh, is really nice to his subjects and sweet and they don't respect him and then like as soon as he falls or is overthrown because he lets people get away with shit, right. he's forgiving, he's not, he doesn't punish people who go against him and when he gets overthrown... Uh, like the people welcome the new tyrant. They throw open their doors and welcome the new tyrant. Mm -hmm. and, I'm trying to um, think of a good example of someone like that in history. Uh, there are a lot of examples. Machiavelli sure goes of. through a number of them. You know, I mean, it's well, I mean, like, again, the classic examples are there were plenty of examples with uh, with World War Two. World War Two is filled with them. Um, you know, the, the old thing of greeting as liberators like the Soviets or something. Um the the idea being that like it's better to if you are harsh with the people who are openly defy you you punish them in front of everybody uh and people get the sense that that, that there's discipline i mean it's really the same with with parenting it's like it's basic parenting of a toddler it's like if you let a toddler get away with anything they will not respect you like they won't thank you for it right or a woman. <laughs> or I mean, I'm thinking of my, my experience uh, substitute teaching with uh, blacks, you know. Yes. It can't be nice. Yes, <laughs> yes. Women, toddlers, blacks. You know? <laughs> but also men. I mean, this is true of, of subordinates. I mean, uh, a good example is uh, the classic thing of... Um, you know, in I know uh, in the in the military they will like show of officers they'll show them the film Platoon to show like not how to be a lieutenant. There's like the character lieutenant character in Platoon who is Mister Permissive and just lets his guys get away with anything. Oh yeah, that's uh... that's very Machiavellian to 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 be like, you know, if you are nice and chummy with all your men. And you, they, they defy you, they disrespect you, and you're so forgiving that you let them get away with it. They're not going to respect you. They're not going to follow you. And they're going to kind of resent you for it. It's the same thing in a relationship yeah. with a woman. If you let a woman walk all over you, she will not, if you simp for her, she will not love you more. She will actually despise you more. She'll find more things to fault with you, and she will betray you faster. So... He's saying, be, and again, a lot of this, there's a lot of overlap, Greg, with this, uh, what Machiavelli's saying, and with um, uh, Gustave Le Bon, the crowd, you know, and what Hitler says about the, ma the nature of the masses are very feminine. It's what they want at the top is strength. So if you're a strong leader and someone disrespects you and you nail them, you come down hard on them very fast and very hard, and the people see that and they're like, oh, God, you know, look at what he did. Uh they feel secure. They feel like they have a strong man at the head. And ultimately, your job as the prince is to protect the people against other princes, against other princedoms, against other rival countries and peoples that are out there, other tribes. So they want somebody strong at the head. I'm thinking of that scene in The Godfather where uh, 
Don Corleone is sitting there and uh, take, taking a petition from some guy and the guy comes in and asks or ask, asks him for money and Don Corleone says, oh, but you didn't, you never came and <clears throat> came over for coffee and now you come to me and you ask me this favor. <laughs> yes, yeah, 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 exactly. No, it's, uh, I, I think that with this idea here, uh, I'm going to give, so let's, let's give some examples of this. One, uh, he brings up in a slightly different context. Machiavelli does uh, Scipio Africanus in Spain, and how Scipio was licentious was uh, gave too much license to the troops, and they just took took advantage and uh, despoiled the Iberians. And this was a problem for you know back at Rome. Scipio was called in front of the Senate, and uh, Fabius Maximus uh, started pointing out all of uh, Scipio's faults. That how you know he let he smirch the name of rome by letting his troops just run rampant around spain and this is bad for us and we can't allow we can't tolerate this you need to keep a tight rein on your men right right uh again the whole the whole idea here is realism is this the way the world actually works is this the way people actually are i would say it is i would say it absolutely is and uh and that you have to you have to deal with people as they are. And I would say, so a couple of, like, let's, let's, I want to draw some lessons from this and some examples. First of all, I would say this, that for people in our movement, our movement right now is selecting for idealists. We are at the phase where we are selecting for idealists. There is no glory to gain, really. There is no money. There is only, like, hardship. I mean, there's glory within our, our thing, but there's not really glory in the broader society. Right. Like, you don't have the social proof. If you're outed as a white nationalist, for instance, like the, you know, if you're those Patriot Front guys, that their pictures are put all over the of the TV, um, you're, you're going to get more social ostracization ostracization is that the word uh more of a stigma so what does that mean well it means that since none of these advantages are going to be conferred to you by being involved with our thing or very few it's going to select for people who are in our thing just because they really believe that this we're is not the right we're not getting um, sociopaths we're not getting lyndon johnson trying to join our ranks no we're not which getting is, climbers which is, yeah. which is good you're you're it's kind of like building a business you're getting the people uh, when your your business is just starting off you're getting people who only really believe in it or are willing to take the risk on you mm-hmm. and those are the people you can trust generally speaking later yeah, well, this is why uh, a lot of um, you can't the the people who are your fair weather friends will join later. I mean, it's like uh, NSDAP when they in 1933 once they got power, everyone started applying. The for 1933 the, for, National for, Socialists. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. And Jazz Hands and I were just talking about that with the fascists too. The same thing, like late, you know, fair weather fascists and. And you see this with, yeah, to use the example of a business, um, you see that a lot with family businesses. Like a family business that's been in business for years, there'll be some person that's been with the guy for years who is like grossly inefficient at his job, but he's very loyal. And you get some young person that was just hired yesterday who's like has the new model for efficiency and is ready to implement it and is like impatient. Like, why aren't we doing it this way? Why is that old person still in? But, you know, the problem is you fire the old guy and you hire the young guy. And he'll work there for like three months till he gets a better offer, and then he'll he'll uh, you know jet and go to the, the yeah. So it's sort of a balance. I mean, Machiavelli does mention how you should you as the prince. It is to your advantage to keep in power some of the to confirm in power some of the people who are from the old government. 
just who aren't your men just because they and in anticipating your uh retribution or your like punishment when that doesn't materialize and you actually extend uh, a hand to them and say i want i want you i want your help that they'll actually be super loyal and efficient whereas right. some of your old fighters will be lazy uh because they're bound to you by love not by fear um right. so they'll but it's 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 a it's a balance. I don't think Machiavelli would say like, well, yeah, knife all of your guys in the back as soon as you get into power. No. You got to give them. He doesn't say this, but the I think the way to deal with it generally in the way in history that it's dealt with is if you have like somebody inefficient who's been with you since the beginning, you give them some honorary position. I mean, Hitler did that with um, one of his cronies who was like his bodyguard early on. Who he was did a, it with a lot of I forget I forget his he name, but a lot of he was a complete like he was kind of a dumbass and just like a, yeah. a, a meathead. And Hitler just made him uh, mayor of Munich yeah. and like he let him get away with whatever. And just it was sort of an honorary position. Didn't matter. But that's what you got to do. You got to give, you know, keep those people because they're valuable. Well, because in the long run, that personal loyalty is going to be more important than right. This than the efficiency, efficiency. Yeah. Efficiency. But yeah. But this. So this idea, I'll, I, I want to give a couple of examples of this. Uh, first of all, the idea of loved and, f and feared. So we can see this principle at work. The, why I was saying that we select for idealists, why that's important, that's my premise, is that it's very important for our guys to read the prince and to, and to take these lessons to heart. Because I think very often, because we are like this, the, the, the legion of sociopaths, this gets back to what I was saying, the the. Everybody in politics in America is a little mini Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson was just the best. He was or the best or the worst, depending on how right. you define it, at being. And the people that rise to the top in the system, like a Hillary Clinton. Pretty much the higher up you get, the more sociopathic you are. Yes, I mean, that's the more perfectly true the military. selected. That's totally true in the military. I was just like, looking oh, like up Mark the other Milley. day. Well, I was just looking up the other day, like, what it takes to become a general. Because I was thinking about, I thought, you know... What if my son chose a career in the military? And I thought, I wonder what it would take for my son to become a general. And it's funny because I found a post, uh, like a Quora post, where it was somebody who was in the military. And they were saying, like, exactly what it takes to become a general. And at a certain stage, it's like so much of it is political and ass-kissing. And, and really just to what degree you are willing to unscrupulously kiss ass to get posted to the right assignment to get promoted yeah. it's like it's it's a because we are not fighting a big war there's which no is selection for bravery no or toughness selection but, uh, for uh, bravery or honor in fact it's the opposite it's the opposite when you look at united states generals they are pretty much guaranteed to be the piece the worst pieces <laughs> of shit in the whole army um you know, this is very flattering to me because I got I got kicked out of cadet, so <laughs> <laughs> I must have been very virtuous. Um, but our guys, our guys, uh, unlike the people in the Young Democrats and Republicans and the people who are filling the ranks of those two parties, people in our movement are going to be idealistic. They're not going to be climbers, and so they are people who have no intuitive. Uh, they don't have the intuitive, like, low cunning when it comes to power politics that a born sociopath does. So that's why it's important to read this stuff, because it's important that you understand how the world works. So to give a specific example, time after time, we see guys who get doxxed and their families come out and condemn them. And this has happened to people you and I both know that we are dear friends with, people who are very near and dear to us. 
very often it happens with people who come from an upper middle class or middle class background. Right. So they're um, the more social, uh, socially status, thinking about social status. And a mistake that our guys make always is that because they are idealists and because they operate on the principle of I have studied history and politics and I read that this fact and that fact and I saw this truth and that truth and the veil was lifted and I realized that the Holocaust is bullshit. I realized that 20,000 white women are raped every year by blacks and no black women are raped by whites. I realized, you know, all of this. I, you get red-pilled. And then because you're an idealist, you're like, well, the truth matters to me, so I must act on what I believe to be the truth. So when you're dealing with liberals who are like, you're terrible. I'm so ashamed of you. I don't even. I want you to change your name. I'm. I'm disowning you. I. I want to go to the press and denounce you as my. You know. I'm ashamed of my. I'm ashamed to call you my son. You're not invited to Thanksgiving dinner anymore. People immediately assume. Well, they must have the wrong information. They must believe the Holocaust. They must think. And this, I see this over and over again, where they're like, their problem is they believe that six million Jews were killed by the Nazis. And so they think what I'm doing is evil. And they think what they're no. doing is good. And they're just not truth oriented. Most people aren't. They don't care about the truth. What they are is, I'm sorry, your mother, your father, they are thankless, fickle, false, studious to avoid danger, greedy of gain, devoted to you while you're able to confer benefits upon them, etc., etc., etc. They are a sorry breed and they are and their tie of obligation, their tie of love to you as their child is broken on every whisper of private interest. I'm sorry, but that is true. If Machiavelli is right, maybe he's wrong. Prove to me he's wrong. But let's just say he's right. If he's right, this is the point that I've made about this over and over and over again. And this is, see, this doesn't just extend to people who are doxxed and are like, well, why doesn't my mother get it? Why is my mother disowning me to the media? Uh, it's not just that person that needs to understand this. It's also the people that are out there like, I need to go red pill the masses, which I think everyone goes through a phase like this. My dad went through a phase like this when he first was reading uh, Rockwell and Hitler and right. he was in high school. He would get, he tells me this story many times. He, he ordered through the mail Rockwell's speech to Brown University and he would play it on a record. Mm-hmm. And he, he was so blown away by Rockwell and his sacrifice and his heroism and, and the truth of what he was saying and his arguments that were so right that he was just like, I just need to play this record for like all my family members. I just need and he would do this for his uncles and his, you know, he'd make people like and, and he just thought all I need to do is just tell the truth to everyone and, and they will all join in this like crusade to save the white race. And it's like, no. That's the first mistake of a young idealist. So what you have to understand is, and this is the thing with like the Holocaust. I've made this point. So you you believe that uh, these people are moral, ethical, idealistic people, and they don't agree with national socialism because they think national socialism is evil based on the idea, the mistaken impression that national socialism gassed like three million Jew kids. And killing Jew kids is killing kids right. is wrong. Gassing kids is immoral, right? So, so people will be like, "Well, that's why we can't associate with Nazism because that's what they think it is." Well, my thing is this: Do those people care about the little white kid next door that got beaten to death by the blacks in the playground? 
Do they care about him? Do they care about do they care about when their own family, some cases when their own children are murdered by blacks? And you will see these liberals come out there and say that they forgive them or that it's not their fault or whatever. They will espouse the, the, the white girl that has the black boyfriend who he strangles her and murders her. And the parents forgive them. Are they doing that out of mercy and compassion and goodness? Or are they doing that because they fear the system? They fear the state. And the state and the system, and it's, this is not true of working class people, because the working class people, the blue collar people, the state doesn't give a shit what they believe. They can they can have a Confederate flag bumper sticker on their pickup truck, and they're and not going to suffer. Yeah, at least at least not the blue collar people. The blue collar people who aren't social climbers. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes. So, but the middle class person, all middle class people. Especially because they are in a state of precarity. And so, you know, I have talked about this too, how like it was funny in the old TWP days, like uh, uh, right when MSU happened, there was this moment of solidarity between like uh, people who, let's just say, are like trust fund kids who have a lot of money <laughs> and don't have to work for a living. Hey, and, hey. And people who are. <laughs> I don't have a trust fund. <laughs> I know you uh, don't. Uh, I may look some, like it. So maybe some former associates of yours uh, <laughs> and, and other people who are just like tattooed, you know, like like really like out of right out of the trailer park. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but I mean people who, who come from a rough working class background. And there was this sort of harmony that both of those types were willing. Maybe this example is a little too close to home, given uh, your, your history with MSU. But I re that was the most striking example I ever came across, where it was like, it's funny that the, the guys who are really rich and the guys who are really poor can take a really radical position. But the guys who are middle class are the most concerned pissing their pants over optics. And I, and, and I kind of forgave them for it after a certain point because I realized they're the ones that have the most to lose. They're the ones that are really the, the under the shadow of precarity, their position, they could lose it. The person, the lump and prole, the person on the bottom has no f further w place to fall. And the person who is living on a trust fund or whatever, they're safe. But the person who is a middle-class person could fall out of that, and middle-class parents are obsessed with making sure their kid stays in that. So when they say that, the, that Nazism is wrong, what they really mean is the institutions of power have declared that this belief system is taboo, and they've attached a rationale to it. It doesn't matter what the rationale is. You can show them with scientific evidence that not one Jew kid was gassed at Auschwitz and it won't affect their decision at all. And that's because Machiavelli is right about people. Now, I don't want to blackpill anybody and be like, well, does that mean that just normies are scum and they're, they're rotten people and they're horrible? No, it just means that the bulk of people in society, it's like female hypergamy, uh, they will follow the strong master, the strong leader. They will adapt themselves to circumstances in order to survive. In the same way that, you know, the phenomenon of the that, that, that people like F. Roger Devlin like go after women for, that like example after example of woman who is like married to this great chieftain and totally devoted to him until he is murdered. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then the new chieftain claims her as his bride and now she's like, 
I love him now, you know. Um, you know, your MGTOW guy, your pathological MGTOW will be, this just proves that women are evil. But he's like, no, you're, but what's wrong with that is you're just applying masculine well, ethics to virtue win, yeah, to yeah, women. Ethics, which, yes. You can't expect you can't, that. You can't expect that. And, and it's the same thing with like a knightly warrior ethic or a philosopher's ethic to a farmer. You, you, you can't, I mean society needs a certain amount of stable people who are not saints and martyrs and revolutionaries and idealists and warrior poets like you you that's good it's great to have that and it's very and it's like we want that but you cannot have a society made up of that so so like i don't want to like now that i've trashed everyone's parents who are middle class and i've made them believe that they are just amoral scum uh for not caring what the truth is because they like i say they don't care about the innocent white kid down the street who was murdered because they don't want to see that if it was a black kid murdered by whites now they would see that and they'd all be posting on facebook along with their if with their ukrainian flags and their and their and their and their uh, covid masks you know how what a terrible tragedy it is that this little elian gonzalez or george floyd or whoever is the latest media victim of you know white supremacy or whatever um but the same exact case a a uh, you know any ethan liming any case jupiter paulson they're just like i don't see that you know, they just like like the, the, the monkey, you know, covering the eyes and yeah. the ears and the mouth. They do not see it. They don't wish to see it. Uh, so, again, to bring this all back, I don't want to blackpill people, blackpill people and be like, your family sucks. The people, the normies are all scum and are – I don't want you to think that. Uh, those same normie parents who care about – so they say they care about the dead Jewish kids. They actually don't. What they care about is money and status. And they don't care about Jupiter Paulson because to care about Jupiter Paulson risks your money and status. Like, if you care about the dead German kids, that's the really fucked up thing about it. If you care about the dead Japanese kids, you can care about the Japanese uh Kids in the concentration camps in World right. War II. But the but ones if, are getting firebombed in Tokyo. In Tokyo, like, yeah. You, LOL, you whatever. care about the ones in Hiroshima and Nagasaki to a point. You're supposed to care more about the dead or the Japanese kids that were put in concentration camps like George Taki. That's higher on the hierarchy because that's like directly anti-white men in America. Right. Hiroshima and Nagasaki Japanese kids, you can care if you're a real bleeding heart about them. But the ones that were firebombed in Tokyo, you're really not supposed to care about them very much. And if you care about them too much to the point where you're like going out there and saying, you know, the Allies were just as bad as Hitler, <laughs> then you're you're now now you're putting your career in danger. If you're a historian, if you're a professor of history, if you're a public school teacher and you make that statement to your students and someone reports it or has a cell phone video of it or it gets on Twitter, there goes your job and there goes your education that you paid for. So my point is. The reason why people are like this, these same parents, these same middle class parents who don't care about Jupiter Paulson and do care about it, and really what they care about is money and status, they also are the ones who put a roof over your head and food in your mouth and raise you. Like, if it wasn't for their basic stability, you wouldn't be here. Uh, they are not heroes and saints, maybe. Some of them might be, but most of them are not going to be heroes and saints and martyrs. But we can't have a society made up of just martyrs. So 
don't despise them for it any more than you would despise, like you said, the woman who would go with the strong horse. It's like if you're attaching to the mass of people, if you're holding them to the standards of saints and heroes and statesmen, you're going to be disappointed. And it's unfair. It's unfair to hold them to that standard. And it's the same thing like a toddler. You tell it like you were saying, you teach a toddler like the basic Plato, the best basic ethic of like share you know, yeah, right. don't like try to steal that other kid's toy. And you're telling them that it's bad and you're, you're you know, they're just like afraid of you're, you're trying to teach them within the context of these. The people that you're associating with are your friends. This is how you deal with friends. Right. You but can't if, teach a toddler how to deal with enemies yet. You, right, well, and a, also a toddler, toddlers don't have really like empathy, like a full on adult. You know what I mean? So if a, if a little toddler is self-centered and they want like they want their ice cream, but they also want your ice cream. If that were an adult person, you'd be like, wow, that person is like a kleptomaniac <laughs> and, a, and, a, and, a, and a probably a sociopath. A toddler is not yet morally developed to that point where they where they understand that you need to eat, too. So, again, what Machiavelli says there is true. We shouldn't exaggerate how true it is and just be like, normies are scum. You know, people, my parents are scum. Women are scum. Children are scum. No. But understand, though, that this is why people do shit. People do things because of the fear, the, the fear of the system that never relaxes its grip. So they love you. They love their children. But when the system puts the fear thing on them, very often a lot of people will choose the system over their own flesh and blood children, which is shocking but true. So, yeah, that's my take on that statement right. and then uh kind of the next sort of development of that idea of of, of uh, love and uh, love versus fear is his uh machiavelli's injunction that the leader does not want to be hated yes that is the key thing it's like if you can be being feared it, it's it's safe it's a good way it it's an efficient way to run things if you have to, if you have to do it then being feared is the way to do it but you shouldn't go so far as to be feared because then or to be hated and despised because then people will feel the need to or will will desire to revolt against you or work against you yes and your government and he covers this in in two sections uh in the same chapter about it's it's safer to be feared than loved he says, nevertheless, a prince should inspire fear in such a fashion that if he do not win love, he may escape hate. For a man very well be, may be feared and yet not hated. And this will be so the case so long as he does not meddle with the property or with the women of his citizens and subjects. And if constrained to put any to death, he should do so only when there is manifest cause or reasonable justification. And above all, he must abstain from the property of others. So don't be hated. Well, then later on, two or three chapters later, he says that a prince should seek to escape contempt and hatred. And he says that uh, the prince, as, a, as has already in part been said, should consider how he may avoid such courses as would make him hated or despised. And that whenever he succeeds in keeping clear of these, he has performed his part and runs no risk, though he incur other infamies. And he says, again, don't touch people's property or women. He says that that's worse. People will, will like, forgive. He actually... He, well, he mentions that, like, if you're going to 
crush somebody, you got to crush them. Like, don't just piss them off by by despoiling them or humiliating them or taking little things from them. He mentions uh, specifically Caracalla uh, for you know, the Roman Emperor Caracalla, the son of um, uh, Septimus Severus, who kept a centurion in his bodyguard whose brother Caracalla had had killed. And he kept the centurion in his bodyguard and regularly made threats against him. And eventually this guy in front of the whole like assembled troops just drew his sword and plunged it in Caracalla and killed him in front of everybody. Right. And everyone was like, haha, great. And I mean, you you can just imagine this, like what, what, how dumb do you have to be as a leader to have a guy on in a position of, of important authority and, uh, to protect you and you're like basically daily making fun of him ha i killed your brother isn't that funny bro well this is what uh happened to trump at the uh, uh white house correspondence dinner with obama like trump was uh was a guest there and obama i think it was obama was just like cracking jokes about him one after another and making fun of him in front of like the whole room and and trump is just there like seething you know <laughs> and it's like was this, was this when obama was president yeah when the obama was White president yeah, yeah yeah and it's like you you know it's a big mistake to do that uh this so yeah let's talk about this principle because this now this is another one that directly applies to our to our movement and you know and to our government or the government of this country the government of this country so and i'm going to tie this back to the feared and, and uh love thing um because this is something you and i talked about privately greg we were talking about specifically i think uh, patriot from guys will forgive me if i use this thing that happened in in uh, idaho as an example but it's a great example of what um of these principles at work patriot front did a demonstra- or attempted to do a demonstration there, and they were all uh, arrested before they could do the demonstration against the pedos. Right, right. You know, and uh, and Patriot Front when they march, they are they make a terrific show of strength, and they look really good in their in their ranks with all their flags, and there's a lot of them, and people aren't used to seeing that. And when you get a bunch of guys in wearing the same outfit, uh, you know. That's an, it, a dozen it, it's guys scary. looks like I mean, fifty, and 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 two hundred guys looks like two thousand guys. So it's like know? why why sports teams wear uniforms, why militaries right. wear uniforms. It, right. Yeah, it looks very impressive visually. It looks strong. So the police there, knowing this, knowing that there's you're trying to make a show of strength, deliberately tried to make them look weak by having their huge display of armed police pointing guns at them which just pointing a gun in someone's face is a act of like strength and humiliation it's flexing it's flexing your power over them especially when you don't need to right when you stick a gun you know when rob rundo talked about uh in that one video when they when they raided him you know it's like he said he felt like he didn't even see it he just because it was smoke and everything and the flashbang grenades but yeah. he could feel like guns on him and there were like 10 guys pointing rifles at him uh they know you're not armed they know you're not reaching yeah, they, for a gun yeah, they, it's a it's a flex it's like you point a gun at somebody and it's like saying i have the power to just kill you with a literally a flick of my finger right now i could just move a finger and you would die so how does that make you feel you know you feel pretty weak right now so they did that with guns drawn the other thing they did was publicly made sure that they got all the Patriot Front guys down on their knees 
and then they publicly unmasked them in front of the press and everything. And they made a big show out of this. So that was a sh that was a thing to say, okay, by the state, you're going to seem strong. You're going to project strength. You want to be feared. Well, guess what? We're scarier. We are more feared than you are. And we're going to show that in the eyes of the public. However, Machiavelli and, and, and feminine like and feminine public brain says, oh, you're weaker. Therefore, I hate you because I'm like a woman. Yes. Yes. Well, that's what all the uh, the same leftists on Twitter who are the, the worst examples of that trend that you're talking about. That would be like, uh, you know, remember when that when that nigger bitch was like standing up to the cops in the BLM protest yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. like, you know, oh, she's so weak. She's so, yeah, she's so brave. Like, she's so brave. She's standing up to the police like any kind of like George Floyd, George Floyd, down, big, scary George Floyd, George Floyd, who is a terror. If you met George Floyd, I'll tell you something, any fucking white person, the, the most the most disgusting, like bleeding heart, nigger loving liberal. If they at nine o'clock at night got a ring at the doorbell and they opened the door and George Floyd was standing there, they would just about shit. Okay. He was like a six foot eight or something great ape. He's a huge black guy who was hopped a up on drugs, who was a home invader. He was a home invader. He had broken in and threatened, speaking of threatening and pointing a gun, pointed a gun at a pregnant woman. So George Floyd is a terror. And if, if it was my job, I don't care how much training I have in guns and everything else, I would not want to have the job of your job is to arrest that huge nigger. Your arrest job is yeah, hopped up on drugs. So Derek Chauvin gets George Floyd, big, mighty, great ape, terror, killer ape nigger, and he gets him and he's like got his head on his knee. And uh, and and George Floyd's like, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Even though he was saying that before he ever right. had the knee on him. It's like when they started to talk to him in the car, he was saying, I can't breathe. They make a worldwide movement of this, of this, oh, poor George Floyd, poor man, this poor innocent black man being bullied by this cop. Meanwhile, Patriot Front, they're like, look at those scared little boys. Look at those little, they're just like scared little boys living in their mama's basement. You know, they, they're pathetic. These little, these little racist, these little bullies. So yes, the feminine brain, the disgusting crowd, when told that you should, should now the strong cops, the police dominating men who are exercising their First Amendment rights when it's okay. anyone in a fair fight would probably beat the cops. Yes, they would. They would. <laughs> yeah. If they were armed. Yeah. Well, um, a fist fight, you know, like, oh, in a fist fight. Fist yes. fight no yeah, no, no question. Fat and disgusting. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And that's the other thing disgusting about that. But but let's let's look at what Machiavelli says. He says safer to be feared than loved. But he also says, you want to be feared, but you don't want to be hated. So Patriot Front goes back the next day when they all get out of jail and they talk to the local community. And they have a lot of support with the local community. And now we see uh, what's going on in the local city council where people are talking about it. The Talking about them favorably. Talking yeah. about them favorably. The lesson that I draw from that and many other things and, and, you know, when we when we went to uh, Akron, we were kind of daring the police to come do the same thing to us. And I think part of why they didn't do it was just because we were there with a specific thing. Ethan Liming, it was fresh in the community. Everyone knows, everyone knows what's going on with that kid. 
that it was a hate crime. What you want to do with the system, with this system, and this is a lesson for all our guys, we can't out-fear the system right now. Like, our guys, no matter how, what kind of a show of strength we did, I mean, the ultimate show of strength was Charlottesville. Charlotte Jews will not replace us. You know, a thousand guys marching through the streets of Charlottesville to the Robert E. Lee statue. That's the ultimate example of what happened in, in Idaho to Patriot Front. The police came and just, you know, oh, you have a you have a, a, a judge signed off on your First Amendment right to do this? Fuck you. We're just going to crush you with riot police and gas and the National Guard. The thing is, though, you want to maneuver the system in such a way that if they use that force, that they will be hated for it. Right. That they will be hated for it. And that's kind of what we were doing in Akron, is daring them to use it, because it's like in that local community... If you shut down our protest for Ethan Liming by arresting us all, a lot in the community are going to hate you because they already hate the local sheriff. So what he says here about that a, a prince should cease, seek to escape contempt or hatred, he says a prince becomes hated by being rapricious and interfering with the property and the women of his subjects. He says a prince is despised when he is seen to be fickle frivolous, effeminate, pusillanimous, or irresolute, against which defects he ought therefore most carefully to guard, striving to so to bear himself that greatness, courage, wisdom, and strength may appear in all his actions. So, so does Zog do that? I mean, they do. Does Zog I think they, do that? I think they do most of those things. They, they well, they don't do... Say, say that list again. Let's go through it. The good ones or the bad? Uh, the bad ones. The things a you don't want to be. prince is despised when he is seen to be fickle, frivolous, effeminate, pusillanimous, well, fr fr or frivolous, irresolute. Frivolous and effeminate, for sure, uh, is, is the system. Pusillanimous. Uh, what is the exact definition of pusillanimous? I know it means like small or mean, but I want to look up. Yeah, small, small sold or something. Pusillanimous is showing a, oh, showing a lack of courage or determination. Timid. It's actually different than what, what I thought. Uh, indecisive was another one. Or irresolute. Irresolute. So Zog is not irresolute. Yes and no. Uh, they are mostly resolute. I mean... <coughs> I think what they did to Patriot Front... Because <coughs> people hate that, that, that uh, faggot shit. Yeah. And what they did to Patriot Front was an act of fear, but not something that... They're not escaping the hatred of the local community. Uh, what they're doing with the January 6th hearing is a super example of this. So whoever decided to punish the January 6th protesters the way they did was clearly a student of Machiavelli because they were saying, OK, we cannot let Trump grandmas march into our halls of power and our halls of Congress because no one is going to ever respect us again. So we have to really punish these people. We yeah. have to come down very hard on them. But I feel like they're not coming down hard enough. Well, I mean, this goes back to what you were saying about that guy, the guy that the guy was insulting. Uh, what was his name? Oh, Caracalla and Caracalla. the Centurion. Yes. Yeah. So, right. So so again, I use this example with us, Greg. Myself, I was never doxxed, and I, I was in the movement, you know, before before I put myself out there. So it, it never really hit me. You're someone, though. I remember your famous uh, cigar chomping video there when you were when you were doxxed. Uh, Michael McKevitt is another one who was doxxed. 
Mike Enoch Painovich was doxed. Stryker was doxed uh, on the NJP committee. And we have many other friends that were. Uh, when you think of what the system does when they dox our guys, and I'm just drawing on our own NJP people, but uh, many others. What the system does when it doxes guys is it basically does what the guy is doing in that example. It just like humiliates and annoys a person. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It's like, okay, you know, if this were Stalin and he uncovers a fascist, you know, you wouldn't be alive to see the sun come up the next day. You and know no one I mean? would know about it either. No one would know about it. You would disappear and you would be dead. You would be dog food. Uh, well, maybe people people would know that you were dead, but they wouldn't see it happen. They wouldn't they would, see it happen. Yeah, they would know that you you disappeared. You disappeared. What this system does, because it is effeminate and irresolute, <laughs> is and literally and reason why it's effeminate is because it's run by women and fags. Right. right. <laughs> okay, so like it's not a and like neurotic Jews who are very uh, effeminate. Uh, what this system does is. When it doxes people, it basically subjects them to a series of humiliations and annoyances and, and like annoying inconveniences. Like you have to give up your job at the hot dog stand. Like what did it do to Tony Ovator? Right. Like they had some like they were like him and his wife were like cooks at a restaurant or something and they were fired from that job. So it's like it it does like a series of small indignities prolonged over a period of time. It does exactly what you were describing there uh, it because it's irresolute. Uh, and then it, the other thing that I love that this system does, it's just like a boon to us, is they take a person and just like cut off all their career prospects, cut off their ability to ever lead a normal life any again, make sure that when their name is Googled for the rest of time, it'll be associated with a career-killing thing. And then it tosses them into the general population and says, good luck, you know, try to survive. So by necessity, people are forced to find new friends, find new sources of, an employ of employment that are, that are dox-proof, um, it's like literally they are operating on the principle of that which does not kill me makes me stronger. So we won't right. kill them. We'll just make them stronger. You yeah, know, that's right, our yeah. like if when we find our enemies, instead of killing them, we'll, we'll, we'll make them stronger. Um, yeah, I think that this principle, uh, first of all, as a movement and this applies, this advice applies to the NJP. It applies to Patriot Front. This advice applies to anyone who will listen to it. If Nick Fuentes is listening to this, this applies to him, too. Our job is to we, – we cannot outstrength the system. In the, we still have to do shows of strength and we still – we can't appear weak. But we're not going to be more feared than the system is at this stage. But what we can do is put the system in a kind of check uh, where they are either forced – and this goes back to the thing of power or legitimacy that I, that I said in the speech last summer. They have to choose between power or legitimacy. So another way of saying that is they have to choose between being feared or being hated. Uh, so, Or if, if they choose to not be feared, they yeah. look weak. So you put them in a situation like, again, innocent white kid murdered by savage nigger prosecutor not charging nigger trying to get him off on insanity that's something everyone can understand we mobilized to protest that and this is why it's so important to everything that we 
protest, every action that we take going after the real injustices that everyone's feeling out there. You put it in a situation, put the system in a situation where if they act to maintain their grip of fear, they will be hated for it. But if they don't want to be hated and they don't act to to enforce their fear grip, then they're not going to be respected. They're not feared. And that's why Mike, it was significant. Mike was out there saying, get down on your knees. Come out here and get down on your knees. Right. So it's like saying we don't respect you. We don't have respect for you. We don't have respect for your system. January 6th was a massive case of this where just this uh we're in noblesse oblige uh oh yeah what does that mean it means like where you 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 are showing uh no sorry was that the phrase uh no 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 it's um that's noblesse oblige is the wrong phrase that means um where you're 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 like a a generous uh aristocrat no it's uh yeah laissez majeste that's it it's where it's where you are just disrespecting the leader in in Europe. In oh, some yeah. countries, there are laws against uh, insulting like monarchs of foreign countries. Right, uh, these are old laws, but which are there right. to like prevent conflicts between European countries. Like if a citizen in Germany is insulting the like Sultan of Turkey, then Turkey is going to have a beef with Germany. So we right. can't, you know, no right. laissez majesty. Right, exactly. And that's so- what January six was was just. The people were showing their disdain for the government. Yes, and and because they were unarmed. I mean, that's the funny thing, and it, and it was. Again, like after uh, everything about Biden has has projected weakness, and I think this is a big part of why it's a factor as to why Putin moved into Ukraine, because mm-hmm. Biden, you, you should be a Republican consultant. Well, I mean, you're not wrong. I, I agree. It's true. <laughs> it's true. I mean, I mean, Biden had a he won the presidency. But he had a, uh, I said coronation. He had a, uh, what do they call the swearing in uh, a... Uh, Some Latin word. I The uh, inauguration. The inauguration. Remember because of COVID, there were like nobody in yeah, the seats. Yeah, it was, it was ridiculous. There were like a handful of, of folding chairs that had like 10 feet in between them. There was just like regions of troops and cops and... Cops and troops and no people. No people. And the, and the politicians gathered around, but no people. And everybody wearing masks. I mean, it was such a ridiculous spectacle. And it was only like a couple weeks after January 6th. January 6th humiliated this system. And they lost a lot of their fear grip. Again, not because the people were armed, but because they weren't armed. Because they were not armed. Because they walked in between the rope lines and and the senators are cowering behind their seats. So the whole thing that we're seeing since January 6th from a standpoint of classical realism and statesmanship and everything else is just a sort of late attempt to do the fear thing and say, see, we're going to punish these people. And it's it's the same reason why they're torturing the January 6th prisoners in a way worse than anything that the Charlottesville people went through. I oh, mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, what, what? I mean, other than like James Fields and, and a few of the people who were thrown in jail. Uh, yeah, for the most part, like there's people who... Uh, with the January 6th thing or being put in this jail in D.C. with uh, Nigerian guards and being dragged out of their houses and and in the cold in front of their... uh, Systematically tortured. I mean, the the accounts of one of the January 6th people that have been sitting in the D.C. gulag, they are being tortured. And uh, there's no question. And uh, so what Zog is trying to do is maintain their fear grip. You know, uh, what if you were Zog, how would you react to January 6th? I mean, 
I mean, let me just give you one one example or one idea. So I I got this from Machiavelli, uh, his discourses on Livy. And he talks, I was just sort of perusing it. And there, he talks about when you have like a mob or a kind of a revolution, not a revolution, but a, a mob of people who are angry about the system. The thing to do as a leader, uh, a magistrate, something is to show up in full regalia in front of everybody and talk to them and use uh, ha- wear all of your like your uh, emblems of office and act in a very uh, unafraid manner and just talk to them and present yourself to the people and that will often diffuse the situation now that of course requires like balls of steel to do uh one example i can think of that ever happening is uh, justinian and theodora you know um the byzantine emperor yeah when um they were having riots in constantinople between circus factions between the blues and the greens uh justinian wanted to flee but his wife theodora uh rammed some steel up his spine and said get out there and show yourself and right. he did and that diffused everything and then they were able to like break down on uh, crack down on the on the rioters and then um reestablish their own authority but can you imagine anybody within zog doing that like all all they would have had to have done i think is for nancy pelosi or one of these clowns to just walk out and talk to these people and it would have very much diffused the situation, and it also would have shown their lack of fear and their grace and and some sort of majesty. I mean, I it, it can backfire. Like if the people, I, I, if the people like throw 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 vegetables at you, then I, it, you, I, you look even I, worse. I think Biden. I think Biden. And uh, well, it's funny. First of all, um, what you're describing is uh, I just can't help but think about it. When I was a kid, I saw the movie uh, The Man in the Iron Mask. You know, that was yeah. made in 1998. You ever seen it? Yeah, I saw it, yeah, I saw yeah. it once. There's when I was a part a kid. where uh, it's Gabriel Byrne plays D'Artagnan, and the people of France are the Paris are like rioting, and they're getting all like agitated, and they want bread, and they're starving, and everything. And D'Artagnan, who's like the most respected one of the Musketeers, rides out on his horse in front of them, and he's trying to talk to them. And they ref- like they're getting riled up, and they like throw like an apple and like a p- rotten tomato at the same time, and people are like freeze when that happens because it's like, whoa, you don't disrespect that. like that's crossing a line, you know. And he whips out his sword and like cuts the tomato or cuts the apple in half and stabs the tomato in like one move, and then tells them, you know, like. Uh, you know, I understand, you know, the king is addressing this. Go back to your homes. And they all, like, respect him because they're, like, in <laughs> awe of his of, of this man, you know. But it's like, yes, go and face the people, speak to them, you know, and, and deal with them. Uh, I don't think it would have worked in the case of Biden or Nancy Pelosi. They're so hated. They're so despised. And they, I think they're actually incapable of that kind I mean, of. Well, I mean, what if, like, everybody in the Senate and Congress had just stayed at their posts and just stood there and welcomed the people in and then that would have been a good move uh, uh but I, they just don't have the they just don't have the yeah. stomach to do well, it i was looking the, at uh, tinnaman square uh they say that the, the the death toll of tinnaman square is um beijing hospital records compiled shortly after events recorded at least 478 dead and 920 wounded and look at the that was in what 1989 what yeah, year? yeah, that was 1989. So look at uh, 
yeah, 1989. Look at Xi Jinping today and the, the status of the Chinese Communist Party yeah, today. Can you, can you imagine, it's comical to think, but could you imagine yellow vest protests in France and uh, Macron presenting himself to the people saying... Oh, yeah. Oh, forget <laughs> about it. Yeah. They would tear him apart. Napoleon, though, I mean, like Napoleon... You know, he was he was really popular and he did a lot of things for the people. But at the same time, like if you were talking shit and trying to like say this guy's I mean, they would shoot you like immediately. I mean, it was just there was no doubt like you would get shot. Yeah. Um, so it's like the the key to to ruling if you're in power is you got to be great and good on the one hand. And then when people disrespect you, you got to come down really, really hard. And I, that's why I would say the system is doing exactly what Machiavelli says to create hatred. The system is doing everything possible to be hated. Like Biden, the Biden administration particularly. And by dragging out the January 6th thing, yes. like why why are they dragging it out? This should yes. have been a swift, vicious like crackdown is the yes. way it should have been handled yes. well, from their perspective. Yes. Well, well, they would have been better off. I hate to say it. And don't anyone misquote me on this. But what happened to Ashley Babbitt? Like, if the system were more had its shit together, it would have done that to like two dozen people or yeah. three dozen people on the spot, like, you know, just shot a bunch of people and then not do this uh, dragged out thing. Yeah, like do like a two years like later, a, you know? like Bloody Sunday in, in uh, St. Petersburg, like yeah, just open yeah. fire and disperse everybody and then. You know, or what they did to the National Socialists, frankly, in, 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 in 1923. I mean, yeah. there were, what, 16 men shot dead. Uh, yes, that's like the traditional way that a state would respond to the, something like I, January the 6th. the system, I think, knows that it doesn't have the moral authority to do that. Like, well, if, you were, if you were a just government and you had anarchists, you could send out the military and just start shooting people. And most people would cheer and they would say, thank God the government's doing something about this. Well, you're not doing, you know, the problem is you're, you you got to pick one. Like the system is not. It's being irresolute. It's being irresolute. Um, you know, you, you wouldn't necessarily have to be just like, I don't know that the Chinese communists in 1989 were known for being just and good. Uh, but the fear level was up to here. So it's like if they kill a bunch of people, a couple of hundred people, you know they're prepared to do that again. You know you know that they're ready to – if, if they killed a couple hundred, they're ready to kill a couple thousand is sort of the way it works. But then there's, there's this like too little, too late thing that can happen where you try to use brute force and kill a ton of people. And the people are already agitated enough and angry enough that – they just it's just another provocation i'm yeah, thinking of like but see even then even then sometimes what that could be done is what a, 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 i think a smart government might respond with an outrage just far enough over the line that it draws out enough people who think now's the signal for the revolution mm -hmm. so that you now have the excuse to wipe out everybody that's your enemy right. you know for the security of the state uh, again, Hitler uh, did this with the uh, Reichstag fire, um, which his enemies, of course, at the time, falsely accused the Nazis of, of, of doing it. Um, the Reichstag fire wasn't just like happened to be done by a communist. It was at a time when there was a militant communist movement in Germany that was ready at a moment's notice to try to take over, uh, which they had done in Bavaria and they had done it in Hungary and they had done it in um, Russia in the previous decade, in the 20s. So, you know, but Hitler used that 
uh, attempt to burn the Reichstag as the that's the moment to just crack down on this group completely and throw them all in concentration camps. This system is trying to do that a little bit with January 6th, but it's yeah. doing it in such a dragged out half-assed way. And they're putting the most despicable people. We were talking about uh, Raskin, Jamie Raskin, but uh, Liz Cheney, Liz Cheney and Adam Schiff and uh, or uh, uh, is, is it Adam Schiff, Schiff and uh, and Kinzinger, Adam Kinzinger. Yeah. These disgusting Republicans and that and that garbage man, uh, what's his name? Uh, well, you know, I think that by using these disgusting people to execute the January 6th thing, they actually are fa- following Machiavelli very well in that regard. Because think of uh, the, the uh, story that Machiavelli relates of Cesar, uh, Cesar Borgia, and he, po- he appointed a, a Spaniard to take control of this uh, town and to just crack down on everybody. And then once once all the blood the bloody wet work was done, then Borgia had the Spaniard executed and, and his body like displayed in front of the people. And then Borgia could pose as well. Now I've now I'm I'm this has gone too far and I'm magnanimously reestablished. So like Khrushchev order. with Beria in yeah. the nineteen. So they'll maybe the, like, maybe Zog will let like Liz Cheney do all the dirty work and then they'll you know depo- uh, send her back to Wyoming in, in disgrace and maybe. say oh see look we've you know uh, we're this this has gone too far and uh, we we. People were mistreated and things are back to normal now. I think that would be the play. Maybe under a President DeSantis, um, that would be a smart move for the system to do is to under DeSantis be like the excesses of the of the January 6th. For DeSantis to get in and pardon people that were in January mm-hmm. 6th thing, that would be a really smart move for the system to do. Yeah, like if de- I were, Republican or Democrat, really. If I, but, but I mean, not really Democrat because a Democrat would, it would, they would... Oh, because be, they would, would be seen as weak. Uh-huh. The Democrat would be seen as weak because of the amount of hatred that that they have. Uh, I think DeSantis would be seen. So, like, if DeSantis were to run against Trump and beat him, which is unlikely, if you see the latest polls, I mean, DeSantis people people still want Trump over DeSantis. But if DeSantisism is like Trump light, Trumpism light. And you have a bunch of Republicans who don't trust DeSantis or don't think he's as much the real deal as Donald Trump. And then he were able to pardon a bunch of the January 6th prisoners. You know, these guys that are getting like 20 years sentences for, for conspiracy to uh, or what is it? Se- uh, not secession. Ma- but, ma- uh, sedition. Sedition. Um, we're, we're digging up these 18th century words. And, yeah. Oh, it's sedition. Yes. I'm so sophisticated. Yeah. Yeah. Sedition. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the system, though, is doing the path of, of hatred. And the other thing is, like, if you're... And this is the thing with Napoleon and many others, Hitler. It's like, you better be making sure the people are getting their bread. You better sh- make sure that the state is glorious and raised up. You better make sure that, like, life is improving for the people and you're winning the big battles and everything else. Then you can be very hard on the dissenters. Or you need to go the route of just total tyranny. You need to go all out in just like, you know, if, 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 so like Hitler towards the end, you know, late 1944, early 45, I always use the example that that's the only time the Third Reich ever got really like what they claim it was the whole time, which is like you make an anti Hitler joke and you're risking your life. It's because they're being pressed on all sides, morale is crumbling, and any weakening of discipline could mean the fall of the whole state. 
So if you are the same thing, if you're if you're uh, the Bolsheviks during the Russian Civil War, you're, you've been at war with Germany and, and, the, and the central powers for years. You've just had a revolution. You have mass famine. You have a civil war going on. You, there's no and, and foreign intervention and foreign intervention there. If you're Trotsky and those Bolsheviks, there's no possible if you're Lenin, there's no possibility of you being like great and generous to the people. You have to just be totally ruthless. So the Tambov rebellion, the farmers all rose up. What is it? Hundreds of thousands of people like executed, killed um, in the Tambov rebellion of farmers and peasants right outside of Moscow in like the early 1920s. Nobody knows about this. Um but they 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 are, they just responded the the Cheka they just responded with ever surmounting like murder torture mass murder but they kept in power I mean it, it got them through that period and they stayed in for the next you know eighty years or whatever um, the same thing with Stalin in World War Two like when 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 things were right everything hanging in the balance the commissars were just like you know you don't fight the Germans and your family is dead you know. Um, Zog is not prepared to do that. They are not prepared to do that. Uh, I don't think they have the material strength to do that, frankly. Um, I mean, they do in terms of weapons technology, but I don't think they have it in terms they of They don't people. have the willingness. They don't, they, they, don't their they own the, agents don't have the willingness. Like can you imagine if they ordered a bunch of uh, government agents to just start murdering people? Yeah, I think know, a they, lot of them would say no. A lot of them would, would not do it. Um, and a lot of peop people would start. Well, here's what would happen. <laughs> Let's, we'll game this out. We'll war game this out. If they started to do what the, the Israelis do to the Palestinians. So let's say the January 6th prisoners, they're like, okay, we're going to send bulldozers to bulldoze the house of the people, the families of the people that were at January 6th. And they start doing that. What would happen is um, some armed citizens would take pot shots at the bulldozer drivers it yeah. would happen it would happen right it would, it happen. would happen if you go if you go start i mean i know we, we like make fun of how conservatives cling to their guns and they'll never fucking do anything but that's relatively speaking they yes won't do there, there will be a few people who would do who would do something and they would probably get killed or whatever but the agents of the government that were doing that would start to fear for their lives my dad is a big fan of uh leonard peltier the indian the american indian movie yeah guy. right yeah who uh, claims that he never shot any FBI <laughs> men? This has been a big case of the left that uh, you know uh, Leonard Peltier is innocent. Well, and, were these uh, were these agents trying to like throw him off his house or something? Well, the famous incident that happened there, and you should read about this. It's a very interesting incident. Is uh, the FBI had a long running thing where the the American uh, Indian movement. It was funny. Aim <laughs> the American <laughs> Indian movement. They were. Um, yeah, I think this was in the late seventies. They were uh, like militantly like whooping and hollering and getting off the reservation, you know. I mean, they were getting a little agitated and uh, we're all hopped up on like, you know, we was genocided, you know, <laughs> this land is ours kind of thing. So the FBI was very aggressively harassing them, targeting them, infiltrating them as they are wont to do, you know. And... Uh, a couple of FBI agents, young FBI agents, like they, there was a broader thing going on, but these two agents went in their car onto this reservation or in this area where these Indians were, 
and then like they were shot by like 20 Indians or something. I mean, they were just absolutely ambushed and turned into Swiss cheese. And the FBI came afterwards and like, who did this? And they're like, you know, I don't know. Like me no shoot up, you know. Red man. Oh, white man. Sky lightning. Yeah, the sky and lightning shot them, you know. And they just wouldn't talk. Like none of them say you know, and so the FBI the Justice Department put a bunch of them on trial and they were acquitted by a jury. And it was like shit. So they knew again. Following off Machiavelli. This is a classic case of it. They had to pin it on somebody. They couldn't let two FBI guys get shot dead and not put somebody away forever from it. So they picked on Leonard Peltier. Somebody testified that he was one of the gunmen, whatever. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But they pinned the whole thing on him and put him away. And he's still in prison today. And there's a huge movement. And, and you know, of course, some Jew, a really horrible Jew, uh, Kunstler, who was a horrible leftist Jew lawyer latched onto this case and made it like an anti-white thing, you know? So mm -hmm. like a lot of anti-white leftists, if anybody looks into this, they think, Warren, why the hell are you talking about this? Because it's like a champ, it's a thing championed by anti-whites. That's true. But the broader point is, this is a study of Machiavelli, like the feds who are supposed to be feared by the state were ambushed by these Indians and killed. And they didn't have anybody to pin it on. They had to pin it on somebody. Well, the, pro the thing is, Americans are armed, and if the feds were coming around like bulldozing the homes of January 6th prisoners the way they do to Palestinians, um, you would have white people doing Leonard Peltier-style stuff, or whoever it was that shot those feds. You would have a bunch of, a couple of dead federal agents, and everyone would be like, I don't know who did it. I didn't see a thing, you know? Um, and then what do you do? Well, then you got to like do like anti-partisan stuff where you like arrest all the Republicans in the town and shoot them all. If you don't get like, who did this? Somebody step forward. Nobody. All right. We're going to shoot. There's there's 50 NRA members in this town. We're going to take them outside. And of it's town. a pretty and it's a pretty, uh, you know, you really once you get to that point, you just have to keep escalating. You, have to keep escalating. you, ba you basically have to do what America didn't do in Iraq or Afghanistan, which yes. is you have to kill a pro. I think the. Uh, historically, I think the the number that you need to kill is about a quarter of the whole population. That's what the U.S. did in the that's what the U.S. did in the Philippines in the Ooh. in the 1900s. Killed about a quarter, and that'll that'll stop an insurrection. Well, they killed uh, two million civilians, I think, in Vietnam. And and you know their policy in Vietnam with the Agent Orange was just oh they're hiding in the woods. Well, we'll just kill the entire forest. <laughs> we'll just bombard. I mean, the system is so fucking evil. It's unbelievable. But. Um, and we'll poison all our own guys while we're doing it, you know? So all our guys will be like, I'm dying of cancer from the poison that I spread on those on those Vietnamese uh, jungles. But yeah, um, to bring this back, I think that the system is hated and they are in a very tough spot because Zog can, like you say, if they start escalating the level of force and the fear factor and doing the things we're talking about, they would start getting ambushes and they would have to keep escalating it. And I don't think I don't think they could survive that. Like, that's why I say materially, I think if they started. So let's say we'll finish the gaming it out. Let's say that they do that. They're going to punish the families of January 6th like the Israelis do. And then they get a Leonard Peltier 
couple of feds get gunned down. Nobody in the town says who did it. So now they do the anti-partisan thing and they line up all the NRA members and shoot them. Now what happens? Now every town in rural America is, is shooting federal agents. Now do they have the men to crack down on that? Do, can they actually win that? What if an actual civil war gets started in America? Is China and Russia not going to take advantage of that? It'd be like, oh, see, nice Taiwan you have there. You know, it'd be a shame if something happened to that. Russia's like, you know what? We're we've decided that not only is Ukraine historic Russia, but also East Germany is historically <laughs> a part of Russia and Manchuria. Uh, you know, it, um, I don't think that they're prepared for that. And so they're doing this petty chicken shit of, like, petty humiliations, tortures, but they also don't have what it takes to get the inflation under control and just stabilize things. So, again, Zog's big weakness is they are doing what Machiavelli said to be hated. And so what we have to do is... And they're, they're, movement. They're, and they're irresolute, I think, specifically because there is no, like, grand Sanhedron that's actually making all the decisions. There's a bunch of different powerful Jews... And nobody can really, there is nobody in Zog who could be the guy that says, okay, I'm stopping all this and we're actually going to make some magnanimous things to the people. We're going to do some things that they actually, to set things right. And we're going to acknowledge a couple wrongs. They can't do that. I don't think they have the, the like, uh, the organization and the cohesion to do that. Yes. And if they did, and and, then there's a danger in doing that too, and that they would just look weak. Yes. Yes, exactly. So uh, the other thing is he again and again says the fastest way to become hated is being rapacious, rapacious, interfering with the property and the women of your subjects. It's faster. Well, they, to be certainly, hated. they certainly do that on a mass scale with um, basically turning with the uh, sort of total degradation of the moral system you're basically turning all women into uh like whores well i I would say this i would say this they're not it's not like gilgamesh they're going out and like taking one for themselves and then and well they kind of are well or yeah they are yeah there's a steady trickle in that the problem is it's not publicized and highlighted and conservatives who could be the ones to most highlight it are most afraid to highlight it uh i think though that I think again oh, with, with money, certainly though. I mean, well, that's with money, easy yeah. And, and this is this is what we need to do as a movement: is attack those two points over and over again. So this is why, when uh, whenever, particularly white women, again, this is partially why I think that this whole like the whole uh, uh, Me Too and feminism, and then the counter reaction to that. Uh, is sort of a gay up in terms of to divide women against men. Um, you know, we don't have to endorse the the claims of third wave feminism or second wave feminism to feel a sense of protectiveness over our women as white men. I think that when I see MGTOW or red pill stuff or, you know, that shit's dying down these days. But when I see that, you, you see it with the incel community. With the promotion of inceldom, mm-hmm. you see a kind of um, uh, like a, a typical example of this, and this is a bit of a digression, but I'm going to bring it back. You see a typical example of this is when you'll see like a, a white woman who is a coal burner who is then raped and murdered by her boyfriend. 
and and then it's like, oh, she deserves it. But the the real print, the real position, the correct position is, the system did this to her, and made and basically took a woman out of our. The system did this to me. Is the, the correct well, impression to, to, to all, one of to my women? To one of my women, the women of my race, the yes. women of my people. The system did this to me. Yes, exactly. So when you get someone, you'll even get you know at its most ghoulish and its most cowardly, you will have people who will absolutely take glee in that. You when know? I think it's a, it, that's an over, it's a a result of like kind of the over, um, an over focus on individualism and individual re- responsibility. If you if you take that idea that people should be held accountable for their moral decisions very far and you don't think of people as groups you think of people as individuals and then also if you think of um if you assume that women uh should be judged according to male moral standards then you get this kind of thinking and it's if you assume the sort of classical assumption on female morality is that women are neither good nor bad. They just react to their environment. Now, that's not to say that you shouldn't punish women for doing bad things. You have to encourage good behavior. But like the the psychologically healthy position is women are neither good nor evil. They are just, they're women. But a tribal outlook would be, uh, you know, I read this about the Turks one time. I read this, that uh, it was on some site. I went down a rabbit hole one time where it was talking about dating in other countries and the way men and women are in different countries. And I read this about Turks in Turkey, that Turkish men will like hump anything that moves and any kind of white girl or anybody else, they will like relentlessly go after. But that if you're in Turkey, like, and you go after or chase after mm-hmm. Turkish women, you will be like... I'll put a jihad on you. Yeah. And which, again, <laughs> seems to be like for our retarded white Western minds, it's like... Well, you have to either be – it's like double standard. She, she, you, you, you have, have to, to either, allow her to make that decision. Uh, well, it's either it's either all women must be respected and she has to choose and it's her mind and her body and her choice and women make rational decisions for themselves and what, it, what whoever she wants to date is her choice. And if she just rejects me, she doesn't like me, well, I'm not going to – I'm not going to hit on her because I would be disrespecting her or like – Women are are chattel. Women are are cum dumpsters, and all women are just there to be used for sex. And I'm a sex tourist, and I should be. I can sleep with this woman. I can sleep with that woman. I can sleep with that woman. It doesn't matter if she's black, brown, white, whatever. Um, both these are profoundly asocial, uh, moral, but they're, but they're also anti-moral bo- systems. Well, they are, but they're also both like they're both like not making a friend enemy distinction. You know what I mean? They're both like. They're, they're objective. It's like I have developed my theory of women and I will apply this in every case to the abstract ideal of the woman versus the tribal subjective friend enemy distinction way of looking at it is, oh, I'm in foreign lands. I'm I am a conquistador <laughs> and I am in South America and I am going to take Indian brides because I'm a conquistador in South America versus like. I am in Europe and uh, there are Arabs in my land and they are hitting on white women, which are my women. And I'm going to kill them because I'm I'm not saying people do that today, but I'm saying that we're the, talking the, like, yeah, like the, the Moors attitude, or something. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the attitude of, of uh, we you know, we've been just talking about um, uh, the case of uh, of uh, Emmett Till, you know, Jazz and I have been like done a series of things on on um, on uh, fascination about Emmett Till. 
and Emmett Till, you know, was 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 a, a sexual predator, the son of a sexual predator. Uh, he was 15 years old, but as you know, blacks can be very scary when they're 15. And he sexually assaulted uh, the wife of a southern guy in Mississippi, and uh, the husband and his, I think his half brother or something, uh, you know, beat him and killed him. And it was like, don't mess, don't come here, because Emmett Till was from Chicago, you know, and he had a different um, ethic. For, you know, he said to her, like, hey, I've fucked white women before and don't be yeah, afraid, right. baby. And all this was putting his hands all over her. Now, you could say it's wrong what they did. It was certainly it was illegal what they did. Uh, and we condemn illegality. But that sort of that contrast, that tribal ethic of friend enemy distinction to either the degenerate sex tourist, MGTOW or whatever, or, right. or not even MGTOW, but but the. Uh, Vouch-inspired sex tourist, or at least as he was before he found... Uh, uh, Roosh, right? Or Roosh or Vouch. Roosh, yeah. yeah, Roosh. Same Roosh, thing, whatever. Roosh V, that sort of thing. Before Roosh became uh, found God or, or uh, Zoroastrianism or whatever it is he converted <laughs> to. Uh, but that de the degenerate sex tourist uh, or, the, or the simp feminist you know, beta male feminist who just respects all women and just is groveling. But these are on both these belly. are both like permutations of individualism. There's the yeah, well, women the only... individualism or men individualism. Like I can I can fuck whoever it doesn't matter. Anyone else can fuck whoever it doesn't matter. Or women should fuck whoever. It like none of these make any sense if you think about how societies are formed and and yes yeah yeah and and to get it back to to get it back to uh to to uh, well first of all to bring it to what I was saying about the kind of the incel woman hater who is gleeful <laughs> because the coal burner was tortured and raped and murdered by her black boyfriend. Um, in a way, you're actually just rationalizing doing the same thing that liberals do, which is like you're rationalizing sort of taking glee in stuff that bad things that happen to white people. You've just found a way to do it through like a pro-white roundabout idea. The reality is that you should view her it's not I'm not telling you to be a white knight and a simp and be like that poor girl in many cases. Yes, that poor girl. In many cases, her father gave her bad morals. Her family gave her bad morals and told her, like, it's or, OK to or date Hollywood niggers. did yeah. or Hollywood did. And, and, you know, there's a lot of nice girls that when a nigger comes onto them aggressively and wants for a date, hey, you know, come on with me, baby. And, they, and she's never had a white guy come on to her that strongly. And she's conflicted because if she says no at this point. Like she's a racist and I'm not saying that's all coal burners, but that's some girls that are killed by their black boyfriends. But let's say it's even a trashy girl that, that is just a whore and she goes and gets with the nigger. It's like you're I'm not saying be a white knight, be like, oh, for the honor of that woman, we must go to. No, it's it's like she's a white woman. She's a part of our tribe. Right. She's it's one a, of our women. It's a racial insult. It's, well, it's it's like the it's like the Pakistanis with honor killing. I mean, I'm not saying she should be honor killed, but I'm saying it's like it's like that's an extreme version of like. It's not like my sister is trash. My sister is scum. My sister can go defile herself. And it's none of my business. It's like, no, you have brought dishonor to the family. Like, you are part of the family, whether you like it or not. And if a guy dishonors my my sister, it's like he has dishonored me. He has dishonored my family. That's the way you need to think. That's the way tribes of men think. So to, the, to bringing this back to Machiavelli, what is happening constantly is a defilement of our women. It's happening all over. The Jews are doing it digitally with pornography, with OnlyFans and stuff like that. 
and there's a very real defilement that's going on with niggers. And you can say this to, I think, all white women since 2020 understand that we're in a different environment where women can be preyed on by blacks at any time. And if they call the cops, they could be called a Karen. They could even be arrested. This has happened. And if their white boyfriends defend them, like uh, the kid in right. Seattle or in Washington State, then uh, Ian Cranston, then he gets set up for murder. So what we should do is, as a movement, we should, one, appeal to the fact that, if not appeal directly to women, appeal to the men that right now your wives, your daughters, your sisters are basically being staked out there like being fresh meat. As, as chattel and, and by the system. Any, savage nigger can put his hands on her and he is the victim if she says anything about it that was the thing of emmett till they want to arrest this old woman i mean i don't know if you've been following yeah, this they yeah. want to fucking go to the they're going to the nursing home to try to arrest this woman why for being the victim of sexual assault she was sexually assaulted by a black 60 years ago and they want to arrest her for being the victim of sexual assault so they're coming after the women of their people and they're certainly coming after your property through taxation and through uh, usury and interest. And, and, well, and money producing, uh, printing money. Yes, through inflation. Inflation, through inflation, yeah. Yeah, through inflation, they are coming after your property and your pro prosperity. So this system is doing everything it can to be hated in Machiavelli's uh, definition of it. And what we need to do is draw attention to that fact and again, in every action, in every action, force them to choose between fear and, and being feared and being hated. So if they take the route where they're going to be feared and we do something and they say, okay, well, we're going to meet that with fear, they get hated for it. And if they choose to not take that action, then they lose the fear grip that they have on people. Makes sense. We can we, we drag this out really long. We can do a part two if you want. Maybe we, we might have to do a part two. I... We'll do a part two. We'll do a part two because there's a lot of other. Those are the two biggest principles, though, that I think with Machiavelli that like you can fill. It's easy to fill a whole podcast with just those principles. Uh, but yeah, people should read The Prince. Uh, if your mind, if your if your eyes glaze over when he's talking about obscure just skip those parts, you know, just, 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 I don't know. I find the examples is like the easiest part to remember. I don't remember the principles, but if I think of, oh, he was talking about this example, then it's like, oh, what was the principle involved in that example? Okay. Well, that's, that's what it is. I mean, I'd say if you don't know the examples, like just read the Wikipedia entry or read a, read a brief book on, on whatever, um, yeah. whether it be classical illusion or, or Renaissance age illusion. And this is, so people understand the prince is like, it's not just something you should read in high school. This is like one of the foundational texts of politics and of realism in in the Western canon, right? I mean, wouldn't you say the prince is like right up there? Machiavelli is like right up there with yeah. the top minds of political science and political theory. And again, if you go, if you go to just reiterate what we said at the beginning, if you go into it thinking Machiavellianism is it means being manipulative and being a conniving asshole and and cheating people who are honest and decent, wrong. It doesn't mean that. It means that you cannot apply if you're dealing in politics and high statesmanship, you cannot be the nice guy and assume that your enemies are going to be friendly and honest. You have to assume that people are going to be shitty. And you have to calculate, take that into your calculations. Um, 
and I like what he says there about when to not be pusillanimous and shitty. What does he say? He says that you should actually um, be. Um, what does he say? That you should have this uh, greatness of character, ma manliness, and all these things. That's something that. Uh, yeah, here it is. He says that in his private dealings with his subjects, yeah, don't be frivolous, fickle, effeminate, pusillanimous, or is irresolute. Bear yourself, striving so to bear himself, so that greatness, courage, wisdom, and strength may appear in all his actions. I think that that's good advice for all our guys, you know? Bear yourself... So that greatness, courage, wisdom, and strength may appear in all your actions, especially if you're a leader. Yeah, and I don't think, you know, you can fake it a certain amount. And because you notice he says appear, but Machiavelli would not agree. And none of the classical authors that he read would agree that you could totally fake it. No. You, have, you have to mostly have those things, but yeah. you might as well take credit for it if you have them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He says you should. He often says you need to. You need to appear good in in a lot of ways. And he particularly he's, he's focused on the realism thing. It's like realistically, you just need to appear. Yeah. And again, even that, there are people who, like, this is a phenomenon in this movement that I've seen. There are people who are some of the best people I know that are very um, modest about who they are and what they are. Um, and they hide their strengths and their virtues. They keep them hidden under a lamp, uh, under a lampshade. And it's like, uh, and then I see other people who, in politics and in our movement, who are relentless self-promoters. Not so much anymore, but there was a lot of this in the 2016, 2017 alt-right. There were people who were shameless self-promoters and set themselves up as, like, great leaders and admirable people and really uh, were not didn't have the qualities you, you the moral can't, or you, personal you actually qualities. can't fake it over the long much. haul you can't you can't like yeah you, you can't can. especially in a in a revel in a uh like a very high pressure situation you can't fake having good qualities for too long eventually yeah. something's going to happen that shows that you don't actually have those qualities circumstances will shake it out it'll shake out who are the real who have the right stuff <laughs> versus who don't you know like it'll it, it'll be revealed over the course of, of, of struggle. Vorwärts, vorwärts, mit in die hellen Fanfaren. Vorwärts, vorwärts, Jugend kennt keine Gefahren. Deutschland, du wirst leuchten stehen. Mögen wir auch untergehen. Vorwärts, vorwärts, mit in die hellen Fanfaren. Vorwärts, vorwärts, Jugend kennt keine Gefahren, ist das Ziel auch noch so hoch, Jugend zwingt es doch.
Jugend, Jugend, wir sind der Zukunft Soldaten. Jugend, Jugend, Träger der kommenden Taten. Ja, durch unsere Fäuste fällt, wer sich uns entgegenstellt. Jugend, Jugend, wir sind der Zukunft Soldaten. Jugend, Jugend, Träger der kommenden Taten. Führe, wir gehören dir, wir Kameraden, die 